This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actionable ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Ron Varney. Ron started his career in the art world at Sotheby's, where he was served as a director of marketing development and then later as senior vice president in the trust and estates department. Uh, he's written numerous uh, publications for Sotheby's and has also founded Sotheby's books. Uh, Ron has written widely uh, on the arts for publications such as Esquire, Smithsonian, House and Garden, and, and the Harvard Business Review. He's a graduate of Amherst College and uh, where he majored in English and his personal collecting interests in the art space include rare books, drawings, photographs, English furniture, and Japanese art. Well, thanks, Ron. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you for inviting me. So this intersection of art and family offices and working with uh, with families around their art collections. How did that come about for you? Well, I think, um, you know, going back to my days at Sotheby's, we would, uh, you know, I was in the trust and estates department. A lot of the major business at an auction house comes from estates, comes when families have, you know, a death in the family and a collection is usually uh, going to be valued and sold. And I saw a lot of the trouble that families had just negotiating that system especially the auction system, which is very arcane and very ancient. And I, I thought that a lot of mistakes were being made in terms of preparing for that kind of situation, in terms of getting painted, authenticated, and so on and so forth. And so when I started my business in 2002, I decided to work mainly as an advisor through family offices, through financial and legal advisors, to give them impartial advice about how best to navigate the art market, especially in estate situations where you know, the families are under tremendous pressure, they're grieving, uh, they have to make kind of snap decisions in many cases, maybe things haven't been properly prepared in terms of selling a collection. And so they need somebody experienced and knowledgeable to sort of guide them through that system, often, um, you know, under uh, time, uh, time constraints. So that's really how, um, you know, this niche in the market really started for me. So I'm sure we're all tired of hearing this word of COVID and the pandemic, but it certainly had an effect on museums, on art in general, in addition to auctions and things that took place in there. Now that we're kind of on the other side of this, you know, how did the art market fare through this? And what are you seeing now that we're coming on, um, on the other end? Yeah, that's a really great question, Eddie, because actually the art market changed tremendously I think it had a lot of change forced on it. Um, you could talk about the auction world, especially in the art market generally, pre-COVID, as being very old, traditional, stuffy, off-putting, intimidating. Um, a lot of people didn't really know the, the customs of the country, so to speak, <clears throat> in dealing with the art market. Because of COVID, I think everything shut down for a while, and everything had to be sort of reimagined, re-engineered. The auction houses, for example, took this as an opportunity to get rid of a lot of uh, uh, needless expenditures. They used to produce these mammoth catalogs for their sales, fully illustrated in color. Uh, the ones for the big evening sales were, were like doorstops. They were so big. They got rid of all those. Um, people weren't going into exhibitions anymore. They couldn't attend auctions. So everything became remote. They started doing things on, on online, and it almost became... It was almost like the auction world and the art market generally became something like the home shopping network. 
And so I think as a result, that market has become a lot friendlier. It's become a lot more inviting. It's become a lot more diverse. And I think as a result, people are uh, navigating the art market in a much easier way nowadays through fairs, through buying things online, through uh, just generally getting more information. So I think it's been a great advantage for uh, collectors and families especially. So they're getting a lot more information, but how do they find out if that information's any good? Well, again, I think getting, you know, someone like you, <clears throat> Dentons, you're a enormously respected organization with a worldwide reach. Um, I think that your clients look to you for help, for advice, for guidance, uh, for, you know, best practices in any given field. Uh, increasingly, firms like yours are uh, centers of influence for families in making decisions about just about anything. So they go to you for advice. Uh, help us uh, navigate this terrain in the best possible way and give us the best advice. If you don't have it, maybe you could introduce us to people who do have it so that we can make sure that we're doing the right thing. So I think that's all that information can be sort of sifted through and percolated and, and analyzed through these advisors. So when you're looking and talking to families, how do these conversations typically begin on the art side? Is it they have a small collection or they've been doing some things sporadically over the years and they want to get more professional or more organized about it? Or, or does it typically end up with, you know, I have these goals and I want to go down that road and how do they kind of go from that hobby state into a diff sort of different state of play? You know, usually it's around um, what's going to happen to all these things. Uh, because as you know, and nowadays children aren't really interested in what their parents have in the way of art and collectibles and so forth. They haven't been part of that process of, of buying and acquiring those things. So in many ways, they feel detached. And as a result, usually the conversations begin along the lines of, what do I need to start thinking about in terms of planning for the eventual uh, disposition of this collection? Um, you know, do I need to have things valued? There are things we've inherited that we don't know whether they're authentic or not. They may have tremendous value. We've never really uh, d done that work to kind of uh, vet these things and find out what they're worth and whether they're saleable. So oftentimes it's a very practical um, uh, initiative in terms of starting on making a plan for a collection. Other times it's a problem. They have something that um, they think is valuable, but they're not sure and they, they want to sell it, but they need to find out how they can deal with this problem. So it could be any number of things, but planning, I think, is often the biggest part of it. So the planning piece comes into it, but there's also this notion that you talked about before of finding out what pieces they have, how they, and, and buying new pieces, how do they go about due diligence in the right way? I mean, it's, it's one thing to see something on an auction. It's another in this space to go find art on your own. How do you see families approach this in, in, in a good way? And where are some of the common pitfalls that you've seen in the, in the diligence I mean, I space? think the good way that they approach is they get, they get advice. They get someone to basically um, help them evaluate let's say, the, um, the authenticity and, and, and let's say the value of something they might want to buy. Um, you know, get another opinion and don't jump at the first opportunity. I think the, the most important thing is to step back, lower the temperature, and not feel as though you have to jump as soon as something presents itself as an opportunity in the market. So I think the biggest thing is just 
um, you know, being careful and cautious. Uh, value is the single biggest problem, I think, in the market because, you know, things are often purported to be, let's say if you're buying something from a dealer, it would be probably a marked up price. You know, it's going to be more than you might pay for something uh, at auction. So you, you want to make sure that you understand that you're getting value for what you spend. But I think the biggest issue for a lot of people is just how do I get the information? Do I go online? Do I study uh, the market more? Do I look at, uh, you know, what, what's been sold at, at, at auction and, and what are the prices achieved for certain things? And once you gather enough information, I think, about things, then you become more knowledgeable. Going to an art fair is a tremendous way of learning a lot. Uh, these fairs have become a phenomenon. They're all over the world. It used to be people would go in to see their dealer, you know, a gallery owner or something, and that person would sort of be mentoring them in, in, in the acquisitions and, and bringing their attention to things that are coming up for sale. Now, those collectors go to these, go to these art fairs where they can see hundreds of dealers and thousands of works of art, and they can really get a sense of educating their eye and seeing what they like before they jump into um, actually acquiring something. So I think the more you learn, the more you kind of put yourself out there and get exposed to the market and soak in information and advice, um, the better armed you are at, at making decisions. So how do you look at provenance and authenticity? What, you know, obviously doing and getting a, a good team around you to build uh, that expertise is, is, is one thing. But in this world where opportunities for people to create yeah. fakes... Uh, things that you, you've talked about in, in your writings. How do you get around some of those things? Well, I mean, you really have to dive deep and you have to ask a lot of questions. And you know what? If you're not getting the answers, step away. Um, you know, now the auction houses, for example, are really tough with families who have works of art that have been in the family for a long time and uh, are purported to be by this or that artist, maybe very valuable, but they've never really seen the light of day. And, and currently now... The standards for, um, you know, examining provenance and making sure that something is legit, it's, you know, it's got uh, proof of ownership going back a ways. There are invoices, there are bills of sales, there are records of museum exhibitions, whatever. Um, if you can't provide that information, you may have a real problem selling something. So I think from a buyer's point of view, you want to make sure that you are absolutely assured as to the uh, you know, legitimate prior ownership of something that it is in fact real. And let's say if it's uh, a work by a well-known artist that let's say the authority, the, the catalog resonate committee, whatever that vets these things has seen it and approved of it. If you were selling a, a sculpture by Alexander Calder, a well-known 20th century artist and um, very big market, very, um, um, you know, big prices in that in that field. If you had a sculpture by Calder that has not been seen by the Calder Foundation, let's say, let's say you, you bought this from an auction house 30 years ago. If they haven't seen it, you can't sell it. So you would maybe physically have to have that sent to the Calder Foundation. They will examine it and then they will include it in their archives. You'll get a certificate and then you can sell it. So this is the way the market's become. Paperwork is very important nowadays to make sure that authenticity and provenance are assured. Otherwise, you could be buying something that looks great, but it's a fake. What about storage and, and how families are looking at this, especially when you're talking about passing art on for multiple generations or looking to maybe lend some pieces to a, 
to a favorite museum that the family has. How, how do you see families go about storage in, in, in the right way? You know, a lot of times it's, it's kind of haphazard, Eddie. I mean, storage has become a booming, booming business in this country. I mean, it's really a parallel universe to the art market. The biggest storage uh, patrons, I think, in this country are probably museums. They have dozens of storage facilities filled with things. In many cases, um, you know, they, they probably know what they have, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of inaccessible. A lot of families do the same thing. They put things away in storage and they kind of forget about them. And you've got, uh, I think, families that have very valuable things potentially in the current market in storage that they just they don't know about. They're probably not insured. The storage facility may be semi, you know, adequate. They, they may not have real proper art storage with humidity control and everything else for paintings and for furniture and things like that. So I think storage is a great, um, great uh, subject for families uh, to address, not just in terms of a storage facility someplace offsite, but they can have things up in the attic, down in the basement, in closets, tucked away in cabinets, things that in today's market were just about everything you can imagine that can be defined as a tangible asset of some value could be saleable in the market. So you want to make sure that you really have a keen sense of what you have, where it is, what it's worth, and um, you know have it properly insured if you can. But storage is a huge issue for families nowadays. So you mentioned inventory, right? Keeping track of where things are. Are there technology or, or, or other areas that are, are helping that improve, especially as art changes in different dimensions? We've got the, you know, the NFT market yeah. that was there's certainly uh, a lot of buzz in 2020, 2021 about it. What, where do you see that going? Are, are, are there technologies that families can leverage to, to help with inventory and and, and making sure they know where things are? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of, um, I think, uh, programs um, that have been developed for basically creating elaborate spreadsheets of, um, you know, what you have, what it's worth. You can do a kind of spreadsheet in which you can see what you paid for it, what a current valuation is, how much it's insured for, so on and so forth. Um, you know, those things can be created by a family themselves. I mean, you don't necessarily have to have a program. I think the important thing is to just address this issue, to take stock of what you have, to get it inventoried in some way, uh, to know where it is, to have pictures of it. You know, some people talk about things that they have in their house that they they don't even know where they are because they can't visualize. I mean, you know, sometimes you just have so many things, you don't even know where they are. So having a record of where things are, let's say in a house, in a room, uh, with a description and a photograph and so forth, that's a great way to start. But I think just getting a handle on what you have now in this market where values are so overheated is tremendously important. You've been doing it through one of these, you know, spreadsheet uh, systems um, is helpful. That's that's a great way to begin. So let's talk about the market. What is hot in the market? What 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 is in demand? Uh, what are you seeing out there in terms of trends? And where are we on NFTs? <laughs> well, I think in terms of the what's hot and what's not. I mean, obviously, the more traditional fields of collecting, you know, furniture, decoration, silver, things like that. The the kinds of things that your parents had in their house. Um, those things have really gone cold. Uh, nowadays, uh, you know, the word luxury has become the buzzword of the art market. And the auction houses create 
departments around luxury goods, almost like they're Macy's or Gimbel's or something. And uh, what does that encompass? Well, jewelry, obviously, but watches, cars, wine, whiskey, um, those things have become tremendously valuable in the market. Uh, I'll give you an example. With cars, for example, that market is so hot. You know, you're seeing, you know, Italian uh, uh, you know, Ferraris and Maseratis and so forth, vintage cars going back to the 50s, selling for tens of millions of dollars. The auction houses have, have come to the realization that, you know, that market is so deep and so eager for discoveries that they've now created a new aspect of that market, which means project cars. What is that? They've actually gotten around to selling cars that were involved in accidents, that were smashed up, that were put away in storage for a period of years. Let's say a, a 1960 Jaguar that is all original, but it was involved in a wreck and it was put in storage. It's come back on the market and been offered in its condition, smashed up on the market. One of those cars sold for over 100,000 pounds recently, and, and mainly because it's all original. If you try to find a car like that uh, that was undamaged, you might pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. So this market, you know, anything luxury, anything that is hot and of the moment is going to be tremendously popular. NFTs, I think that's moving target. I think that's a, you know, be cautious. Are people restoring those cars or are they just yeah, keeping it as, a, as, no, a, as is? They're restoring them. They had actually had a picture of this car in the, in a, in a auction house catalog. You looked at it and you thought, that car smashed up. It was a head-on collision with a tree. Somebody's going to take that car. They'll have a restoration team completely redo that car. And the key about that car is that everything's there. It's all original. And that's what car collectors are looking for, things that are original. This is why you'll see in auction catalogs pictures of barns being opened up. And there's a Bugatti from the 1930s in weeds. And it's, but it's all original. People go crazy for that. So discovery is also part of this market. Finding something that's not been seen before, and that becomes all the more valuable because of its rarity. Are there things that are sparking your interest around case law and things that are coming out there in terms of intellectual property. We've seen some discussions around yeah. Warhol, uh, some recent things around people using yeah. images of Botticelli and, and some controversies around that. Where, what have you seen uh, come out on, on that? And what should people be looking out in that space? Well, you know, it's funny as the value of, uh, especially contemporary art has gone up so much. A lot of these artists are really feeling kind of abused as though their images are, ripped off, <clears throat> you know, uh, photographs are taken and used for promotional purposes of works of art that should be copyrighted. So I think that artists have become increasingly vigilant in sort of policing the use of their work, especially on things like, you know, NFTs. This is why I think some artists are getting very proactive in terms of minting NFTs around their work, because they want to be in charge of doing that. They want to be Basically, they, they are the stakeholder and they want to control that market. So I think you're going to see law playing a much more uh, assertive role in protecting the rights of artists, especially in a market where uh, the, the use of their work is sometimes very, um, you know, very frivolous and I think, um, you know, wrong. So you've, over your career, you've seen 
art in different parts of the world that sometimes are in, in conflict zones and in areas where some art is, uh, has to be stored and secured and, and, and carried away. Any of anything that jumps out at you of recent trends of how people have been able to save some of those art pieces and, and dealing with those security and transportation issues. And there's yeah. some issues around in Ukraine, obviously with the recent conflict and, and many other parts of the world where, where conflicts arise. What, what have you seen in your, your experience in that, in that area? Well, um, we haven't been involved directly in any such experiences. However, we're certainly aware of uh, efforts by, you know, certain groups to protect art in countries by, that are, let's say, in war zones or where things have been uh, looted or damaged or stolen. And I think that this is going to become an increasingly important issue in the market. Um, as you probably well know, Eddie, the whole issue of, uh, you know, things being uh, taken out of one country and sold in another, especially antiquities, um, you know, uh, pre-Columbian art, there are whole areas of the art market now that are really troubled by issues of, uh, you know, ownership, where these things really came from. So on the one hand, you want to balance the need to protect these works, especially in parts of the world that where they're in danger, where they're being indiscriminately bombed and, and wrecked and ruined. Uh, you want to balance that with the need to make sure that those things are properly protected for the countries where they came from and that they are returned to those countries, um, uh, you know, in a timely fashion. You see this really being stepped up now with museums uh, under attack, really, by countries all over the world that are looking to repatriate items that were in the past stolen, looted, and so forth. So this is going to become an increasingly important issue, I think, in the art market. So going back to your trust and estate days in, in Sotheby's and how are you working with families and what do you recommend to families when they're trying to come up with those plans of passing on these wonderful pieces of art to the, to their children, especially if, if tastes change? Yeah. You know, Eddie, it's, uh, you know, you get involved in working with families and advising them on all manner of issues. One of the things I think that is a real disconnect for a lot of families is when they don't really include their children in these conversations. And when I, I say children, you know, in many cases, they're adults, and they've never really been included in any conversations about what their parents have, what they own. They don't even know how rich their parents are. And I think that the sooner you begin to kind of include your children, to include all members of the family, their stakeholders, in discussions about art, especially, um, if you have a collection, you spend a lot of money on it, you've you know, you, you've done all the due diligence, you've really created an asset of significant value and importance. You want to make sure that, you know, your children uh, protect that and feel the same way about it. And even if they don't want it, even if eventually it's going to be given to a museum or sold or whatever, or maybe some of it's going to be distributed within the family, you want to include them in conversations about this. So I think from a planning point of view, the most important thing is to make it not just the parents, but the children as well, because eventually, you know, in these situations, I've seen this so many times, the kids that are left holding the bag with a collection that they know nothing about, and now they feel resentful, and they almost feel like this is a burden that they want to get rid of. So you don't want that to happen if you can avoid it. Are there ways to get 
kids involved with art uh, at a younger age that you've seen are more successful? I mean, taking uh, taking them to, to museums and, and, and getting them familiar with art in its many different forms is one thing, but it's another if a family has a serious you know, interest in this area. You know, um, I think I went to a show recently, a museum show uh, for works by uh, uh, Jean, Jean-Michel Basquiat, you know, the great painter who died uh, very young. And his works sell, sell now for tens of millions of dollars. And there's a wonderful exhibition at um, over in the Sterrett Lehigh building on the west side of Manhattan uh, that was basically mounted by his family. And it includes works that are still in the family's foundation. And one of the things there was a card. I think they had bought him a membership in a museum at a very young age. And um, he started going to the museum. And he really became fascinated by, you know, what was there. And he had an artistic temperament anyway. And I think this, in a way, launched him. So I think, you know, getting kids memberships to museums, getting them involved in young collector events at museums, things like that, that's a way to do it. Um, you know, even taking them to flea markets and then giving them a certain amount of money and saying, here, why don't you go buy some things that, that are of interest to you? I think the more that they participate the way that gets them um, empowered to make decisions about art uh, and, and to start maybe even collecting on a modest way, in a modest way, I think that's a way of kind of, of spurring them to, to be interested in the market and not to steer them in one way or another. They should discover their own interests in this regard. So the young collectors um, groups—that's that's very interesting. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about those types of groups? Well, you know, uh, any museums are desperate to get younger members. I mean, you know, they have an aging population to support them, who give them art, and obviously they know the future of their well-being is with younger people. So every museum now has something like a young collectors council. Where they have special events um, for these for these collectors. They have evening events. Um, you know, the Met has an event called Teens Take the Met, and that brings school children to the Met on a certain night, and they give them T-shirts, you know, and they send them off in all directions to explore the Met, and they have refreshments and other things. And the whole idea is to get them excited about being in a museum and to see it in a different way, not in the way that they may have done uh, you know, with their parents when they're being dragged around to these museums, but to see it as kind of a free and refreshing experience of discovery. And you're going to see museums doing more and more things like that in a more daring way, uh, especially around art education, so that they can get younger people interested in, in, in art, in whatever form they find fascinating. So, Ron, if you had to think back on a lesson learned, you know, something that you know today that you wish you would could tell Ron <laughs> 10, 20, 30 years ago, what would it be? You know, I probably would have started collecting in certain areas of contemporary art that I didn't uh, find necessarily all that appealing. But, you know, it's, um, I think the lesson learned as a collector is, you know, also if you find something you really like, uh, go ahead and get it, as long as you've done the due diligence around it, because often you wind up regretting that you didn't do it. And it's not always about money. It's usually about just trusting your own instincts, trusting your own taste, and um, you know, going after something that you feel uh, is going to enrich your life in some way. And I think art does that in so many different 
so many different ways. So I would say that, you know, one of the great reasons for getting into this, getting into the art market is it's just a wonderful voyage of discovery. And it takes your mind off a lot of other things in life that drag you down. So I, I think this is another reason why families that sort of uh, are involved in art together find it's a really, um, it, it's a cohesive activity, shall we say. Ron, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? Probably the best way is, uh, you know, through our, our, our website or our email at ronald at ronaldvarney.com. Uh, our website at ronaldvarney.com provides a pretty good overview of who we are, what we do, gives examples of, um, uh, you know, the kinds of things that uh, we've represented on the art market. Also, it has a lot of, um, I would say, uh, thought content about, you know, blogs and, and illustrated guides and things like that about the art market. So people can, uh, you know, kind of explore the art market and find out more about uh, what's happening nowadays. Well, thanks, Ron. And I agree. Check out that website. It's got some really good guides and, and, and good um, information uh, on just good best practices that families should be thinking about in the space. So, well, thank you, Ron. And, and thanks for everybody for listening in today. If you'd like to get in touch with Ron, certainly contact him directly or uh, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation or so inclined, please subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support. To sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space, do check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone. Thank you.